Hello, and welcome to the Yom Yun Podcast, where we analyze a gados from Shas with a metaphorical or rational method. Please contact me with comments or questions, Bailey at gmail.com. I'm going to go back a little bit to Memzai Namad Aleph 47a. There's a story with Rish Lakish that I did not count as Agoda, as Agadaic in my notations, but I believe because it's a story, it's a Misa, um, we can learn something from it. So, Rish Lakish sold himself to Ludoi. Um, the Safaria translated as gladiators, and other people translated as cannibals. In any event, the people are Ludians, Ludites, and they were aggressive, so gladiators and or cannibals. He took a bag with a round stone inside of it, and um, or it could have been a piece of uh, metal. And he said, there's a tradition that on the final day of a captive's life, before his captors kill him, they do for him anything he requests, so that he would forgive them for spilling his blood. On the final day, they were set to kill him, and they said, what would you like? So he said to them, I want to tie you up and have you sit down, and I will strike each one of you one and a half blows. He tied them up and had each one of them sit. He struck them. Anyone he, uh, when he struck each of them with one strike, with, with a stone in the bag, the one whom he struck died because Rishlakish was big and strong. Rishlakish gritted his teeth in anger and said to the one whom he killed to prevent the other ones, Are you laughing at me? You still have half a strike remaining with me as I only struck you once. He killed them all and Rishlakish escaped his captors. He left and came back home and after some time had passed, he was sitting, eating and drinking, concerned about his livelihood. His daughter said to him, You don't want something to lie upon? He said to her, My daughter, my belly... Is my pillow. This is enough. When he died, he left a cove of saffron as an inheritance, and even so, he said about himself when they leave their wealth to others. He was pained because he did not use all of his property. He exhibited confidence that Hashem would provide his needs by not saving money for the future. Uh, so it's interesting. The second part is a beautiful message about Amuna, and the first part is about. Um, Hishtadlis, I would say. Faith versus human effort. More specifically, part of our human effort is that we need to know with whom we are dealing. Sometimes it is enemies. It's not common to get stranded on a desert island or uh, taken captive, but it can happen, God forbid. Uh, But very often people are involved in business or someone who is a wicked, I guess, an immoral person or a personality disorder, etc. comes against us. We need to figure out a way to stop them, whether it's gathering together a group of people to say no, or whether it's thinking about what is the weakness that a person has. How can I use it to my advantage? It reminded me about a story with Christopher Columbus. I'm not going to get into his personal positives and negatives, the morality or the immorality, or the natives he visited, their innocence, or their doing a Vodazara. Needless to say, uh, these are not religious Jewish people, so we can't say that's a deacon. 
But an interesting story I remembered. So we know that Columbus sailed over to the quote-unquote New World. So he had a fourth, he did three times over the course of 10 years. His fourth voyage, he was in trouble. Um, so in May of 1502, he had four ships, but there were shipworms eating the, eating the holes in the planking of his fleet. This was very common back then. They had to uh, regularly wash and fix the bottom of their vessels. They put them on the, near the shore and leaned them over and cleaned them, leaned them the other way and cleaned them. Modern technology and chemicals has helped us out. But he had to come to the island that is now known as Jamaica, abandoned two ships, and he had to regroup with two of his other ships. The Arawak Indians welcomed them, and they provided food and shelter, but as they stayed for weeks, the tensions mounted. This is from space.com, by the way, with citations. You can see the hear the story elsewhere. It's written down by his son as well. Um, after six months, half of Columbus's crew mutinied, robbed, and murdered some of the natives. Uh, the natives were supplying cassava, corn, and fish in exchange for trinkets and metals, which were n not that valuable. Uh, famine was threatening, so... Columbus wanted to save his skin. He had with him an almanac from Johannes Müller von Königsberg. Uh, he was known as Regio Montanus, epic name there, German mathematician. So he published an almanac for the years 1475 through 1506. He died in 1476, but he was able to um, predict future astronomical events through the, you know, the powerful telescopes looking at the patterns in the sky. So, Columbus knew that on Thursday, February 29th, 1504, there would be a total lunar eclipse. Armed with this knowledge, three days before the eclipse, Columbus met with the Arawak chief and said that the Christian God was angry with his people. The Christian God is angry with his people for not supplying them. And he said... There would be a, um, the moon would be inflamed with wrath, covered in red. And that's what happened. And the, the natives scattered. The Arawak chief um, spoke to him about it. And Columbus said that. He went, back, yeah, he went back to his book, and before the eclipse was about to stop, Columbus had been timing it with the hourglass. He told the Arawak chief that the moon would return, and it gradually did reappear. So they were able to be fed with um, the Arawak Indians. It didn't bother them, and they got some supplies, but then they eventually got major supplies from a relief caravan for Miss Baniola which I believe today is now the Dominican Republic slash Haiti, that island. And they returned to Spain on November 7th. So it's an interesting event, you know, people using their knowledge with um, idolatrous natives to save their skin. Not that they were righteous at all. Uh, and, but, you know, we should all remember that if we ever need it. I always say when I set aside my frustration, healthy anger, I set aside my frustration or my anxiety, I think of more inventive solutions. So... Think about your enemy's weakness and try to use it against them. 
Lashem Shemayim. Okay, let us continue. We're going to get into the last two chunks of Gomorrah, God willing, today. To finish the Masechta, God willing, very exciting. And if I need to regroup with more things about Ashmodai, I was thinking, or tidbits from this Gomorrah, I will do so, God willing. But let's at least get through the text. Okay, very seeming innocuous, uh, somewhat cryptic Gomorrah. But once you've learned the principles that we've been talking about in this Masechta, this tractate, you will be able to understand it readily. Okay, so the Gomorrah in Gittin is talking about uh, how for three gen- three generations a surname is considered valid to be linked to that family, and then after that it's not. So how do you know that three generations is like a normal span of time, and after that it's unrelated? So Amar of Huna, Rav Huna says, what's the Pasuk? You will beget children, and children's children, and then you will have been long in the land. You'll, you're like old there. Yashan, old. So after that, after three generations, it doesn't matter if there's a similar surname. It's not necessarily linked to the family. So the Gemara begins to darshan about this. So Rabbi Shua ben Levi says the following. And by the, I looked up Rabbi Shua ben Levi. He's, he's a definitely... Um, He's someone that brings a lot of agados, so that could be why he's here bringing the agada. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi, perhaps he knows about this uh, broad, epic description of the dismantling of the Jewish people, because he not just a master of agada, but he walked with Elia Hanavi and the Mashiach at the gates of Rome. Obviously, it could just be metaphorical agada, but it's he had, he had. Very keen access through wisdom or Ruch Kodesh to um, broad traditions and descriptions of events. So, Eretz Yisrael was all, was not destroyed after Shlomo Melech and all these wicked kings um, were living until seven Bate Dinim of Avodazar passed. So, as we see in Rashi and the Meforshim, this does not mean that it was the Sanhedrin or actual. Uh, Jewish judges, but it was the royal families. Seven royal families passed along, um, and then Eretz uh, was destroyed, and there was full Gullus. Who are these people? Yeravim ben Nevat, Basha ben Achia, Achav ben Omri, Yehu ben Nimshi, Pekach ben Remaliahu, Menachem ben Gadi, and Hoshea ben Ela. Shnemar, as it says in the Pasuk, Um Lala Yoletis Hashiva, Nafcha, Nafcha, Nafsha, Ba Shimsha Baod Yomam, Bosha Vachafira. She who has given birth to seven languishes, her spirit droops, her son has gone down while it was yet day. She is ashamed and confounded. This is describing the seven evil kings. So immediately um, no, let's get into the Pasuk. So Rabbi Ami says, what's the Pasuk? So he's understanding these Pesukim to be talking about seven. Um, the phrase, you will beget children, children's children, darshaning for seven generations. You will beget is singular, one generation. Children is two, Bunim is two more. It's mentioned three times, seven generations in total. Etc. Look at the um, textual emendations over here. So it's talking about seven and not three. 
So, you know, the question is here, why does it, if you look in the Sefer Malachim, uh, this Gemara is only bringing seven kings that came from the Malchi um, Yisrael, the uh, kings of Israel versus the kings of Yehuda. Why are the, you know, at the time, the Jewish people were split. Yehuda and Binyamin were one group, and all the rest of the Shvatim were the other group. So why does it bring these kings who were um, from the Yosef side, from the... Uh, General Klaistral side minus Yehuda and Benjamin. Why doesn't it bring these the wicked kings from Yehuda over here? You know, and Rashi Rashi says, well, really, it could have brought them because they were in the same time. They were in the same times. So it's like, what? Why don't you say both of them? They lived at the same time. Why don't you just t- tell me the kings of Yehuda? Not these kings, and tell me it was at the same time, Rashi. Those are all from the same family, isn't it? More epically worse. So why 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 would that be a good answer? And also, um, you know, Yehuda, it's son after son. Those are all all related. It's one royal family. But here, these are seven royal families, and it mentions Ahav instead of his father because Ahav was worse. So, you know, why? why here's why the way I would ask it in a, a good sense. Why is the Gemara bringing these, emphasizing these ones? Over the other, that must be the direction of the answer. Okay, so um, yeah, I'm gonna answer because the rest is more of a direct rush. So, if you've been listening to this and to my Shoftim, Shurim, and Spheros and all that, I believe that it takes seven steps to build up to Malchus, and then just as we saw. You know, Edom, the Romans come along, and then Malchus dissipates. We go back to the Esod stage. We go from stage 7 back to stage 6, etc. Here, this is the original dismantling of Eretzisral, kingship, Malchus, Kalaisral, tightly in the land. You can't just have... Oh, I got another question I would ask. Why, why, why is it 7 idolatrous royal families. Why not one or three? You know, why not ten? So the answer is as follows that um, it took seven stages to build up to pure Malchus. And we had David, we had, um, you know, David for 40 years. You can argue about um, Shal and Ishboshes. Um, and then, but anyways, David and Melech 40 years, Shlomo 40 years. Those are 80 years of tight kingship. Hashem says, should have destroyed Shlomo's kingdom because he didn't keep everything properly. But, and then listen to them, that's the middle of the Ashmedai, Gomorrah. But he kept that kingdom in honor of David Malach and didn't give David Malach the full kingdom because he wanted to give, he had blood in his hands and he had the sin, or Yechiti, blood in his hands. So Shlomo built the base of Midrash. Okay, but anyways, we had 80 years of interspersed kingship and in order for in order to wash away the seven steps of Malchus you, ha- you have to have seven steps of, of, of Odazara and I believe here it brings specifically people who are not from Yehuda because it's going to be the seven spheros again if you don't like spheros again you can talk about seven archetypes or way of building a nation and 
don't forget also, these were under the dominion of the Yosef Shvatim. Really, even though you know some of these people from Yisachar, etc., they're still, who's the strongest leader? Is Ephraim and Menashe Shvatim. Yehuda was with Binyamin, that's Malchus. Then you have Ephraim and Menashe with the um, Shvatim. And it's going to take, It's you know, we know that Yosef's Mida is potent to build and to destroy, so it's going to be destroyed under this uh, rubric. So I'm going to go through these. I've not done all the agados on these seven kings. It might give me more depth or perhaps change my mind. I'm open to that. But I at least have a cursory understanding that they relate to the spheros based on Pesukim. So from the Pesukim, Yeruvim ben Nevat is from Ephraim, and <clears throat> he says he's a Gibor Chayo. In 1225, Yud Be'ez he has this paranoia, like Paro. I'm going to say that he is Yisod with secondary Malchus. So, he's a mighty warrior, healthy paranoia, or unhealthy paranoia, and he, he's the one that brings the idolatry in very hastily. Um, that is the influence of someone who's in, in touch with a secular culture, Ephraim, and I'm not going to label him as primary Malchus. Okay, so that's him acting to organize and to deconstruct in, in terms of religiousness by bringing idolatry. All right, Basha, I connect to Neitzach because he's from Yisachar. Listen to my introduction number one from my Shoftim series. I go through all the different Shvatim. And connect to their Mida. Next is Menachem. I have his Gevura because he attacks and bribes. So healthy Gevura is self-control and not and to not be phased by money and to grow like Yitzchak extensively grows financially. Here attack is, is the unhealthy Gevura outward that should be spared for rare occasions and using money for the power struggle. Yehu is Tiferes, because Tiferes is, it can be is ex, um, experiential trickery or experiential orchestration. Yaakov Avinu has the healthy trickery with Esav, and Yosef, when um, his second meter is Tiferes, he is organizing the brothers to come. So here, Tiferes, in a non-spheral sense, relates to um, art and beauty, metaphor, and experiential Think representation, enactments, enactments. Um, so Pikeach, I have a schesed because he's a very simple, straightforward kingship, undefined, schesed, undefined. Hoshea, I have as Hod. Um, his name means like saving and helping, and the Hoshea and Yehoshua relate to Hod. Long story. And he himself avoids and triangulates with other kings, that that it's the opposite of Aaron Cohen doing a healthy triangulation, getting two people to get along. He does his triangulation where it creates conflict and he avoids because this anxiety and emotions. Aaron Cohen avoiding stopping the Egel And then you have Achav. So Achav marries Izevel. That Jezebel uh, from Sidon and Sidonim are Malchus. I assume that's a pair to match up. It is possible that Yeravim is Malchus. And Ahab is Yisod, Yeruvim being mighty, and Ahab being lesser than his wife in a power sense. I'm open to that. But if it is as I say, Yeruvim from Ephraim makes sense, Ahab, Machos, Miriam, Machos. This could be why. It doesn't mention Ahab 
or all of his family, um, Chazia, Yoram, Athalia, and um, Asalia, and Omri. He doesn't mention where the, what uh, Shevet they're from. Some people argue it's Yisachar. I see here in some historical sense. But um, no, it could be very simple. It, 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 they can't be from Yehuda, right? So if you're going to tell me that they're Malchus personality, they're not from Yehuda, that's very confusing. Rather, you know, rather um, they just have that personality. In other words, if they're from Zavulun and they're not Chesed Yisod, if they're from God and they're not Chesed Gevura, if they're from Rubin and they're not Gevura, etc., it wouldn't make sense. So there you go. You have all the archetypes. Uh, Netzach, education. If you don't like the spheros, education is Netzach. Gevura is self-control boundaries. Teferis is symbolism, metaphor, uh, metaphorical culture. Chesed is things are undefined, things to be molded. Hod is emotions and helping. Yesod is connective elements. And Malchus is a tight nation already connected. Okay, so getting back to the Gemara. We readily understand why these seven, there has to be seven idolatrous royal families because they have to undo the work that was done to build the Jewish people. Simple. And so, you know, when Rashi says, oh, these people were in the days of the Yehuda Shvatim, um, either I'm going to disagree or his words are patently obvious. These seven non-Yehuda Shvatim are more potent to destroy um, the nation because they come from the Yosef and the other Shvatim. Yehuda, once he's already there, he's there. But the other Shvatim that come along to give a dose of different culture, methodology, archetypes, that is what is destructive. So Rashi, if I did, maybe it's a different shot than Rashi, or maybe it's the same thing as Rashi. Rashi's just saying Yehuda was there, but they're not the ones that are potent to destroy the nation. Yehuda can be wicked, but Hashem might keep the kingship with them, and the country could function. But the other, Shvatim and Abodazar, boom, that's a recipe for dismantling Kal Yisrael. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, that readily, readily makes sense, and it makes sense why I didn't mention Ahab's family. Okay, uh, back to the Gemara. So if Kahana and Ravasi said to Rav, and by the way, Ravasi is also someone who commonly talks about Agada. It says about Hoshea ben Allah, he did that which is evil in the eyes of Hashem, but not like the kings of Israel. And then it says, against him came Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and exiled Kalisra. So, if, if Hoshea did less evil than everybody else, why was his generation punished with the exile? And I also want to point out, parenthetically, if you remember, we have an ongoing shot that the Jewish people are attacked with the meat of the attribute, the behavior, that they're weak in. And if you go back fundamentally, Avram Avinu comes from Aram Naharayim, from Haran, other side of them, Saudi Arabia over there, Babylonia. 
and he would, and cholesterol was attacked with Kushan Rishasayam. When they were fundamentally at the lowest zero level before the seven steps, they were attacked with that fundamental primordial issue topic. And here, Assyria, that's at the top of this sort of arch that Avram went through. So I think these are very successful, potent people coming from the previous lands to attack. It makes sense that Kalyastra is being decimated. They've lost the seven steps. It's going to be another pre-Abrahamic um, attacker. They're going back. They're going to Galus Bava, back to the land. Okay. So the reason why, if it wasn't so bad, the reason why the Galus happened here is because Hoshea canceled those guards that Yerovan placed. He placed them there to prevent people from going um, from the kingdom of Israel, meaning the non-Yehuda kingdom, to go up to Yerushalayim. So if the guards are not there, the Jewish people can, even though they're separate in two nations, they can go together to the same place, to Yerushalayim. But people did not go. Originally, Yerovan was paranoid. He thought, wow, if people go to Yerushalayim, it's going to mess up my kingdom. Um, but rather, Hashem told him, just keep the kingdom separate. He never, Hashem never said to make blockages. Of course, he never said to make a Bodhazara. But Yerovan was paranoid. Uh, he could have had his kingdom, but nope. He reached too far. And here, Hosea was a help. Pun intended, his name intended. He was helping there to be an obstruction removed, but they still didn't go to Yerushalayim for the pilgrimage festivals. Aliyah Laregal. So Rav Chista de Marukva said, pause. And there was the name of Rav Chista. Those are the Rabbanim that we had at the beginning of Masechta. From here on out, a lot of connections to the beginning of this tractate, this book. Because it's going to be all tied up in a bow. Whatever we spoke about at the beginning of the Masechta is coming full circle, beginning with Galus and then divorce. And the same rabbis, the same big Rabbanim, are going to be mentioned. So, they said, Marimar Darshan, what does the Pesach mean when it says, Hashem hurried to do the bad to us because Hashem is a tzaddik? Because Hashem is a tzaddik, He's going to hurry to bring a tragedy or a tragedy upon us? Rather, Kadesh Baruch Hu, God did something that was a tzedakah, a charity or an exoneration, um, and He helped the people of Israel. He exiled um, them in the exile, the Galus of Tzidkia, while the Galus of Yichonia still existed in Bavel. As it says, in the, in the Galus of Yichonia, the craftsmen were there, the smiths of a thousand. They were called this way because harsh. They would silence people. They would make people like deaf-mutes with their wisdom and masker. Um, once they would close a certain topic, they would not have to open it again. Meaning... There were great chachamim. Um, so when the galus happened, there were still great scholars um, of the generation who were sent into galus with the chonia. They were able to give guidance and Torah to those who were already who were in, in uh, galus in the time of Tzidkia when they came to Bavel. So that's a kindness in the midst of tragedy, which parallels one of our podcasts, one of our episodes, the passage from the beginning of Masechta. Ula said, what is this charity? That Kodesh Baruch performed charity with the Jewish people. He 
made the exile two years earlier, which is the numerical value of an Ashantem. The numerical value is 852. God sent them after 850 years so that the punishment mentioned subsequently afterwards, utter annihilation, would not be fulfilled either. So when you're in the land for too long, you can become... And if, here's the way I understand it. If you're in the land for too long and you're doing a Vodazara and misbehaving, you will become stale and not exist. So the Jewish people were saved two years from the end. Rav Yaakov said, Shema Mina, Mehera. When it says Mehera by Hashem, it's talking about 852 years. That's considered a fast time. Because it says in Devarim, you will Meher, utterly, certainly perish. Since the Jewish people dwelled in Eretz Yisrael for almost this amount of time, it's apparently considered soon. I just wanted to mention there are uh, several issues with the Jewish calendar. I'm really not a math guy or a historical guy, um, but look around at different sources for the number of years. Certain years were counted in a funny way. Um, but I did notice something interesting. There are at least two years, perhaps three, or at least one, that are <laughs> counted as repeating years. And um, you can't, Do you count the same year twice or subtract a year? But watch this. Listen to this math. Let's say 854, okay? If the 854 years, subtract 14 years that it took them to conquer and settle the land, you got 840. Divide that by seven generations, you get 120. The lifespan of somebody is 120. It's times seven. You have seven generations plus when they were Invading Eretz And to be off by two years is not so bad because you have fractional years, what you do with the year zero and all these things. They get more Megillah about the year, so I thought that was very interesting um, for what it's worth. It doesn't exactly connect to Argomorrah about seven, but it generally connects to seven. Basically, there were seven lifetimes that they lived in Eretz so they had their chance to, uh, to be good. In any event... Uh, this Gemara is elucidated with our principles that we've learned in this Masechta so far. And we have a message from Rish Lakish, but know thy enemy. And circling back to Ashmedai, king of the demons, you know, it's certainly important for us to know the inner enemy, know, know our weaknesses. And sometimes we have to use our own energy against us. You know, sometimes we trick ourselves into wanting to exercise or eat healthy. You know, Ashmedai... He, even though he studies in Shemayim, he is a brute, and he was able to be tricked with uh, taking away the wine, putting in the, taking away the uh, the water, putting in the wine. So you know, sometimes we have to know that our physical body, Nefesh Bahamus, is susceptible to things. Um, we might have to give ourselves rewards or incentives or little bribes, um, and sometimes we might have to accept that we're not in the mood for something. And push yourselves. Sometimes you got to push yourself if you're not in the mood. So studying thyself, accepting yourself is the most important thing. People with the attitude, just push along, just keep pushing along. We're not superhuman. Sometimes we've done enough in the day. We have to rest. Um, so we have to accept that there are emotions as a physical body. And with that, we can be more successful than being in denial, trying to live like angels, or not trying to do mental judo over the Yitzhahara. Nefeshah Bahamas, of our evil inclination, the inclination for the temporal and the physical body that we're in.
God willing, we should have assistance how to navigate the physical world and the spiritual world. Thank you for listening to the Yama Yun podcast. Agados and Gitin, please email me with comments or questions, rabbibailey at gmail.com. Thank you.